HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food and beverage radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll, Lord. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul, though. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Hey, buddy. Hey, my friend. Uh, just me and you this week. No Greg. Yeah. He's uh, having Wi-Fi issues, I guess. Uh, but, yeah. Air quotes. Wi-Fi issues. <laughs> He's still sleeping. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Hung over. <laughs> He's young. You know. <laughs> yeah. So we, we found out some cool... Uh, there's a lot going on right now, uh, Souther... Uh, out in our in our world in our industry and uh, mm-hmm. you know tales is right around the corner uh we're nominated again for the spirit okay. award for best broadcast um which we're super excited and honored uh, to be part of that again of course um and like you've said before it's like you know you don't even care if we win this because if we keep getting nominated that's kind of cooler because uh as soon as we win it we're not eligible to win that award or any, anyone who wins a certain award in any category, actually, um, you're not eligible to win it again for what, five years or something like that? Five years. You're not even eligible to be nominated again. So I, you know, uh, oh, certainly okay. I see, I see both sides, right? If we, if we take it home, that's a big honor and maybe that'll get more uh, sponsors or some looks for us from, uh, you know, for heritage radio, et cetera. Um, but I think being up on the marquee every year has been very uh, advantageous for us. You know, again, I yeah. jokingly always say like, I don't even remember who won five years ago. Of course I do. It was uh, Eric Castro from Bartender at Large. Um, I don't <laughs> even remember who won five years ago, but everyone remembers us because we're up there every year. You know what I mean? That's right. So, uh, um, but maybe it's time we go ahead and get it, right? We've been nominated every year the category has existed. So that's, uh, that's right. It's a hell of a streak. Yeah, right? for sure. And uh, actually, you know, some someone who's a friend of our show, actually, that used to work with you, um, yeah. just won a really insane award that I, I didn't even know was a thing uh, until I heard it uh, earlier today. But um, Austin Henley won. What, tell, tell me again what the award was. Yeah, the Michelin Award is called the Exceptional Cocktails 2023 Award. Um, he won it because he's out at Cato. We've talked to, uh, to him on the show about Cato. I've been to the restaurant a couple of times when I've been out there working on the project we're doing out there. I, you know, I feel like I'm no, uh, you know, uh, 
soothsayer, but I feel like I saw this coming. Um, uh, I know the awards are coming to that place. It is incredible. The, the, the program that he's running is so thoughtful and intentional um, and so like deep and rich. Uh, really excited for him to take this home. I didn't know this category existed. I, I just thought they were going to go up a star. They, they, they did not. Kato maintained its one star status, but I think that's because <clears throat> of the move. You know, they moved from a from a location that didn't have a bar at all. That's when Austin got on board and, and ran the bar. They had one star from that old location. I think it takes a couple of years to dig into your space before you can climb the ladder. But they are gunning hard for a second star, and I feel pretty confident that they're going to get one next year. And I also feel like we're all going to see Austin's name all over all kinds of award ceremonies as, as time clicks by. Cause the, the things he's doing out there are just, I mean, so forward thinking, so cutting edge. And again, so like thoughtful and intentional towards the guests and service. It's, it's just gorgeous. Like, I couldn't be more proud of the guy. You know, he and I worked together for a long time in Maury Margo and to see him go on and do stuff like this is just, uh, it's really yeah. heartwarming for me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the last, the last thing that I saw of his, of notoriety, um, was when, he and I were on the Food Network late at night, about four o'clock in the morning at Extra Fancy eating patty melts, and we had glitter all over our faces. <laughs> what a guy. I feel like the glitter probably had something to do with Julie Renee, That's um, right. his, his lovely wife. Um, but uh, yeah, again, couldn't be more proud of him. And, you know, uh, For sure. this just speaks to the notion of like awards uh, that... You know, we all take them with, I, I do, and I think you do. Uh, we try and take them with a grain of salt. They're just a, a good affirmation of work well done from your peers and colleagues. Um, and they do drive business, so you can't you can't ignore that part either. But I don't think any of us go out there trying to win awards. We go out there trying to do what we want to do and doing it well and doing it the way we want to do it. And if we get recognized for it, then all the better. But uh, again, sure. I couldn't be more proud of this guy for, for this one. Michelin is, I mean, we, we talk about Tales of the Cocktail, but like, Michelin and, and Beard, those are the those are the big boys, you know. Right, right. They're for our industry being as big as it is. It's like, you know, it's more of a consumer recognized accolade, I would say, with James Beard mm-hmm. awards and Michelin stars and things like that. So, you know, it's one thing to say you have, and not discounting Tales of the Cocktail or BCB or any no, of these other things, you know, because we still obviously love them, and with. Tales of the Cocktail being the biggest one, it's still not necessarily that well-known as far as your your general consumer goes. So, yeah, it's cool that those, the category is opening up uh, across these kind of more culinary-driven uh, organizations. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. congrats, Austin. Well, hey, you know what? We've known Austin for a long time. You guys work together. We've got someone in the studio that I used to work with. Yeah. A long time ago as well. Although this kid never seems to age. Um, <laughs> That's true. But yeah, it's all the tropical drinks, right? And they keep you young, I think is, I think uh, so, yeah. is what it is. Yeah. But we, we got a book in the, in the mail uh, recently. Well, you got yours uh, handed to you. Uh, but for me, it got shipped out to me in California. And I, I've been really enjoying this book. I think it was, it's something that is very, old and new at the same time. And that's something mm-hmm. that kind of needed to happen with this specific drinks category uh, of tropical drinks, which we'll get into with our guests. Um, but we'll go ahead and welcome them in right now. We have Garrett Richard and Ben Schaefer. Welcome back to the show, guys. And it seems like you've been really busy with the new book, Tropical Standard, Cocktail Techniques and Reinvented Recipes. Very cool book. Congrats on this. And uh, welcome back to the show. 
Yeah, it's uh, great to be back on the Speakeasy. And I think it's Ben's uh, first time on the Speakeasy, right, Ben? That is. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know the password, but I will speak easy. <laughs> That's right. Sorry. We've talked about you being on the show a lot in the past. It's just, I guess this would be the first time. So welcome and then welcome back, Gary. Thanks very much. Yeah, I guess, I, I guess obviously we're going to dig into the book over the course of the show here. But I think the first question I would ask um, is like, you know, Ben, you, you've, you've been writing and doing a lot of stuff in, in that sphere for a long time. Uh, and you had some ties with uh, uh, the Dead Rabbit and, and all the writing that you did for those guys. How did you two um, t- tell, tell us how you two sort of joined forces to make this this book? And then we'll talk about the book itself. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned how Garrett is ageless. Uh, it, it is true. Him, the- yeah, I met him when he was even younger than he is now. Uh, in fact, he... <laughs> I think was just about to turn 21. And at that time he was yet to become a bartender, but he was, he was a bartender. He was a, you know, he was an obsessive home bartender and yeah. uh, was about to burst from the chrysalis. So I've you know <laughs> known him before history began and was always impressed with his thoughtfulness about, about cocktails. And so, you know, and followed him all these years when he was at, with, with you, Damon at Prime Meats and all his different projects. And uh, when the when the pandemic shut down everything that we held near and dear and and closed existing conditions where he was working, which in my opinion was really the best bar program in New York at that time, um, we thought, well, let's do something with our time. Let's do a book. Let's do a book about all the different pop-ups that Garrett had done over the years, his Exotica pop-ups, which had kind of really begun as a, as a primates thing, I think we can say, and then went on for many years at the Reigns Law Room and slowly surely. Uh, but in fact, that isn't the book we did because of course Garrett had learned so much more in, in the, even in those couple of years since he had done Exotica when he was working with Dave Arnold at Just Conditions, et cetera. So essentially this whole book is really from scratch. It's, it's a lifetime of thoughts, but it's also things that were brand new. So just like you said, old and new, it's about looking at the history of tropical drinks, the history of, of craft cocktails, but it's also trying to do things with them that are a little bit different and can go into a little different uh, flavor and texture directions. Yeah, the I think the original conversation Ben and I had was to do sort of like, I, I think Ben was considering doing these like small books on different parts of New York cocktail culture, kind of like those books that you have about records, like the 33 and a third books. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, um, you know, he, he, he tasked me with, you know, write a couple thoughts down, you know, a couple drinks and, you know, that'll be the book. And then, um, when I started thinking about like what I wanted to talk about and what was important, um, it, I started sketching an outline and the outline was very focused on technique and, it ended up that, you know, I gave the outline to Ben and we were looking at it and we realized it was like a 250 page book <laughs> instead of this <laughs> small little pamphlet on what I was doing at Exotica. And really the, the original outline, the crux of it was technique. And then we realized in just reading it that that was really a space that hadn't been uh, occupied yet by tropical drink books. I mean, Jeff Berry's work is very historical. Um, Martin Kate's book is very rum focused, but there wasn't anything that necessarily told people, you know, what are the mechanics of flash blending? How can you make a 
syrup or a cordial with integrity? How can you use a blender properly and, you know, have it be consistent, you know, time from, uh, you know, from drink to drink. And once we knew that was the, the angle that we wanted to take and that there was really a large story to tell because there was old and new new techniques to talk about it, it, you know, the, the book came into focus and we were really excited by it. it, And even in the midst of being stuck in our apartments. (laughs) I mean, right, I right. So, really so basically, important. you're saying, so basically, you're saying, from there, the book just wrote itself. How nice. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, there there was very little we cut from that initial outline. There were a couple of drinks I had to create to demonstrate certain techniques that were in that original outline that were just like the technique was there, but there wasn't an example drink. Um, so it's kind of cool because I I kind of continued my pop-up and cocktail creations during the pandemic, but they were just for the book. Like instead of doing them at a menu at Reigns or existing, they just existed in the book instead, which was pretty cool to premiere like certain recipes. Cause you know, rare, I think rarely as bartenders, we do that. If we put something in an article, it's usually like been given to a guest or at least somebody you work with. Right. Right. You've had some, somebody's been your, uh, your, your, your test and your control, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's, you know, to me, that's just seems like it's, it was like obviously done out of necessity just to get the, get the information out there. And I, I, this book goes so much deeper than, I mean, like, I mean, you talk about acid adjusting in here and like, to me, it's, just the technique, the te- technique of acid adjusting is becoming more and more kind of standardized and in, kind of employed in more cocktail bars, right? You're seeing it so much more, but it's, it, you know, you'd see it in like liquid intelligence maybe, but it hasn't been in other books, especially something that where you're talking about old and new. And I, when I was like flipping through this book for the first time, it really made me think about what started happening like 20 years ago in New York, right? We all had to like understand, nail the history of the classics before we could start riffing on them. And then people started doing it because it was like, oh, cool. Well, I'm going to change out this vermouth for, you know, Pinot de Chirin or I'll add the Amaro to it or whatever, you know, it might be. Um, But we had to show that we respected the classics first and that we understood them and the history and the technique before we could expand on them. And so that's what this book is to me personally. And it is really interesting too, because take that back 20 years, but then go a hundred years ago. And that's when a lot of these drinks were being invented. So it, it was essentially like a 200 year riff on an old punch. You know, it's like kind of crazy when you think about like the way that these were be- understanding the actual ingredients going in and the technique and, uh, it's just it's kind of cool that it's, it's almost like cyclical but this is like the most advanced version of that history of of mixed drinks in my opinion so it's just fun too i mean like being able to like tropical drinks are fun they're meant to be fun and kind of uh like escapism you know yeah there's supposed to be an accessibility i think with this genre you know there's certain other ones like i'm sure Southern, you see this, there's like sort of like the training wheels and the building up you have to get to with uh, Amaro based cocktails. But like, ideally, there should be, 
if you're serving these types of drinks, there should be like an immediate like recognition of what the ingredients taste like, what, you know, what even your thoughts are and like what your platonic ideal is of something like a Mai Tai or strawberry daiquiri or whatever, even if that thought is not necessarily accurate, you know, but yeah, yeah, a little um, bit lower, lower barrier entry to, to get people over the, over the hill. Right. Yeah. But I think with that comes a challenge because there's so, so much, so many expectations of what some of these classics are supposed to be and uh, how they're supposed to be served. And that really goes to what Damon was talking about is it was important for us, I think, with some of these recipes to sort of show the layers of time that some of these recipes have gone through and show things that were related to some of these recipes. Cause I think sometimes with tropical and uh, faux, you know, tropical and tiki drinks is, is you, you can kind of get in this box where you only look at that, but like, mm-hmm. you know, Ben and I tried to point out contemporary, uh, you know, cocktails that were related to certain recipes or even things related 70 years prior, you know, uh, the swamp water cocktail influencing things like chartreuse swizzle later in the, you know, in the century, you know, there, Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of examples of that, right, Ben, of like sort of the, the layers of time. Yeah, I think so. And I think the, the genius of Garrett of your recipes is that we're looking at historical drinks but we're not just kind of swapping out something and saying, you know, this Manhattan is now a different drink because we changed, you know, we changed it to different Amaro or something. The point is, I think what Garrett does so brilliantly is he tries to figure out the intent of the originator of these drinks, right? So he's, you know, you can't just take the 1944 Trader Vic Mai Tai recipe and make it because those things don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So if you want something that tastes like maybe that did, you have to maybe get there a different way. And I think that's a big, that's a big issue for me is that, I think any kind of cocktail creation, when you're doing historical drinks, it's always a reinterpretation because you're working with different tools, right? The, 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 the rums are different, the spirits are different, the produce is different, you know, even sugar is different, everything's different. Uh, so you have to kind of have an understanding of what, was it, what the intention was, which I think Garrett is really great at. So the book is, it's some of the recipes are very close to what they might've been when they were originated. Some of them are quite different, but the intention is to, to capture what that experience would have been like uh, as it was known then, it, except for, of course, where Garrett has drinks completely of his own that are that are pushing the boundaries in new ways. But, you know, we, we're not trying to say, uh, for example, in we talk about the daiquiri because you can't not talk about the daiquiri. It's, right. you know, one of the best understood drinks, but it's still not understood enough, right, because right. there's always more to know. Uh, and I think the recipe that we present is, I mean, it's not a, it's not a new recipe, we're basically doing, you know, a pretty standard uh, daiquiri, except we wanted to make a big point that people should try it with granulated sugar rather than syrup, which of course is is the original way that it was made. But I think you have to understand that in order to understand, that's a technique now, you know, when, when does when does sugar come into play versus syrup? That's a technique that can help you understand a thousand other drinks, right? So that's where I think the importance of what Garrett says that even though we have these brilliant recipes, and even though these these recipes you can you could drink for years and enjoy all of them, the real point is the techniques behind them that open up the whole world of bartending, not just eighty four recipes in our book, but any recipes you want to do. I think can be informed by these techniques. Yeah, and like for for the example with the daiquiri, you know the the problem with it, the sugar version is that the sugar never really dissolves, and uh, the modern technique that we picked up from uh, was. Uh, 
from my friend Daniele Della Poya, who owns Exotico in uh, mm-hmm. Miami. And he was using, back when he was in Bologna, Italy, he was doing milk frothers to melt sugar into cocktails. And I was like, that's a really good idea. And it should be done for the daiquiri. And, um, you know, once you bought that like $10 milk frother off of Amazon, it was really easy to do sugar daiquiris. And we do them behind the bar at Sunken Harbor Club. And then, you know, once you know that little hack, you can then make whiskey sours that way or Tom Collins is that way. And we've, we've seen people use the milk frother outside of just the recipe that we've told them to use it for, which I think is, is, was a big uh, sticking point for us for the book was to have a lot of these recipes and syrups and techniques be like a jumping off point that then once someone understands that, like the xanthan gum hack that we use for the frozen drinks, like then you can just apply those to other recipes that you're doing, other stuff that you're doing behind your bar and, and, you know, have it be more of a conversation. Sure. Applied learning and, and also sort of the teach a man to fish sort of ethos. Right. I mean, I think that's incredible. And I think that, I think that your particular, um, I don't know, trail and travels through, through the, the bartending world, uh, you know, put you in a great position to to really kind of reevaluate this whole canon of, of of style of drinking and and apply some of these techniques that we have today that you know that simply didn't exist when these drinks were made. Um, you know, simple things like acid adjustment that can change the world of of tropical drinks because they you know so overwhelmingly involve juices that then you can really dial in so you can have a a standardized product at the end of the day, but also just a more impactful flavor. Um, I think it's pretty incredible. That that to me is the number one, you know, if people only take one thing away from this book, I really think the acid adjusting is the most powerful technique. It's so simple. All you're doing is adding a little citric and malic acid powder to juice, right? But it unlocks those flavors, as you've said, so powerfully. I mean, if, if you do nothing else in your life, everyone should be doing acid adjusted juice. And there is a lot of confusion about, you know, there's different ways to do it. And people talk about super juice, but you know, I think we've explained in a very simple way what the real purpose of, of juice is, which is really to enhance to enhance the acidity of you know non lemon and lime juices like grapefruit, orange, pineapple that yeah. need a, that aren't really sweet enough to be the sweet part. They aren't really acidic enough to be the acid. They need to you know to fall into place, and acid adjusting does that. And then you have in a tropical drink where you might have multiple juices, you can have one juice that has the flavor you want and the acidity you want. It really changes the game. You have a more direct flavor. I mean, everyone should be doing this every minute of their lives, in my opinion. Yeah, we're forcing yeah. the orange and grapefruit to get their act together because most of the time they're not uh, <laughs> they're not pulling their weight in cocktails, you know. Right, they have they a, got, too too great too great a water content versus their acid content, right? Yeah, but I also yeah, really, just, you know, yeah, lazy. I, I'm also really intrigued and love the fact that you've taken some time to dedicate to the opposite of that, right? Like, yeah, everybody's keen on acid adjustment, but you've also dialed into sugar adjusting the bricks on juices as well. And I think that's something we did at, uh, you know, Booker and Dax, you, you guys did it, XCon, oh, yeah. and like it's, it, 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 it really makes a difference. Uh, and, and again, not, not incredibly difficult to do. I was just going to say everyone should do acid adjusting. Um, <laughs> yes, everyone right should now. do it. <laughs> do it right now. Everyone, right now. Yeah. You don't need the brown but acid. The, the, the sugar, a.k.a. bricks adjusting, you know, it does take a little bit of math, and you do need a little bit of equipment. It's not expensive equipment. Sure. But, yeah, again, the, the power of that is, is significant. It's cool because, like, you know, if you're presented, especially if you're working in, like, a restaurant bar situation, if you're presented with, like, 
seasonal fruit, seasonal citrus, uh, you know, like something like blood orange, pomelo, what have you. Um, you know, you could juice it for service. You could muddle the fruit for service and have it for, you know, a couple of days, or you can turn it into a syrup that could last a month and then you can run a special with it. And, you know, for a home bartender, that's even more impactful because, you know, if you say to a home bartender, you know, for this recipe, you need raspberries, like the raspberries may not last until they have time to make the cocktail at home. And if you actually know how to turn it into a syrup that works just as well as simple syrup, and you know, it's a one to one swap, then you already know how to use that syrup. That was that was a big lesson from uh, Don Lee, uh, at, you know, the first time he was training us at existing is he was like, you know, there's so many ingredients in craft cocktail bars that don't operate like the ingredients you already know how to use. And he's like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you try to calibrate these things so that then you have more freedom to, you know, move stuff around? And, you know, that, that made a lot of sense to me. I think that's one of the crucial things. I mean, again, that's the idea that the techniques open up a whole world for you. The fact, the fact that things are, are, or can be swapped in and out. That's that's what brings them the power, right? If you've got, if you know your your syrups are all going to be at fifty or sixty six bricks or whatever you want them to be. If you know your juices are all going to have the the acidity of lemon or lime or where you want them to be, then you can swap them out for each other, right? And you can try new things because they're going to play the same role in acid or in sugar because you calibrated them. And I think right. that's just so brilliant because people are always th- those are some of the issues you deal with when you're making a new drink. How do you balance it? In a way, if you use these techniques the balance is kind of, is kind of part of it. Right. You're dialing right. it in and, and you're creating like a standardized sort of weight uh, of the hammer that you're using. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to, re- to really stretch for an analogy there. Um, I think it's really guys, important to- for a cocktail, like the, like the Brown Derby, for instance, you know, like it's grapefruit, honey, right. It's like, you always have to like throw some lemon juice in it or something just to like make it make it work right. So like I was suggesting the grapefruit would make a ton of sense, but. Well, that's one of the drinks Garrett handles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, Seller was going to say that we need to take a quick commercial break. Uh, let's do that here from our sponsors and get back in the studio talking with Garrett Richard, Ben Schaefer from Tropical Standard. Back in a few. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we are back. You're listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. In the studio today, we have our friends Garrett Richard and Ben Schaefer from the book Tropical Standard. So, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of really great recipes in here and Mm. and modern takes on some kind of classic uh, techniques and just kind of like modernizing some of these old 
ideas of what tropical drinks are. And one thing that I really love about this, I, I'm, I'm the design guy of the group. So, uh, you know, flipping through this book, there's not one ceramic tiki style mug that's all in glassware and they're beautiful. Yeah, I hadn't even, that's great. I, hadn't, I didn't even notice that. That's amazing. Yeah. One thing I always say about drinks, it's like, like if you're coming up with a drink, make sure it's pretty because that's the first thing people are going to notice. Like as far as all your senses go, when it comes to food, it's olfactory because you can smell the food before you ever see it. Um, when it comes to drinks, most of the time, the first the first way you perceive it is through your your vision, right? So got to make sure they're beautiful. And I feel like, a like Southern, wasn't it something we've talked about before? Like a lot of the old kind of tiki drinks, my, they were serving those opaque uh, ceramic mugs to kind of cover up some uh, bad, not so yeah, desirably looking. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask Garrett that, you know, I didn't notice, you know, I looked at the book, uh, I didn't notice the, that there were no tiki mugs in there. Um, but, but that's just not the type of thing I would notice. But is it myth or is it mythology that that the mugs were often there to kind of hide the somewhat muddy nature of a lot of the cocktails, uh, so that you know you didn't have to actually see the drink? Which you guys are certainly disproving in this book. Now I'm looking through <laughs> it and I don't see any of that, so it's gorgeous. I'm, I'm sure there is some practical yeah, use of that of the of the mug to hide certain colors. But to me, I think mugs are there at least in contemporary bars, I think they're there to hide improper flash blending technique. I think if you look at some of the older places that are still around, like Tiki Tea, um, the Maikai, which is reopening soon, um, they are also mostly glassware. The Maikai has you know, one or two mugs, but um, mostly glassware. Don the Beachcomber's early menus, all glassware, all Depression-era glassware, very specific designs, which we go into in Tropical Standard. And I think when I was... Thinking about styling the book, I had already been um, collecting a lot of glassware, and I wanted to lean in on that idea because I think when you flash blend something properly, you really can see like layers of ice. You can see foam on the top, which is very hard to photograph, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you have to really get your timing uh, done right. Um, but you know, you get foam on the top, you have multiple layers of ice because the, the, uh, Hamilton beach is breaking up some of that ice on the, t on the bottom. And, you know, then you have some whole ice on the top, but, um, I mean, Ben and I had a lot of fun going into some of those older, uh, glassware manufacturers and seeing, you know, where some of those designs come from. Like Ben, we should talk about, you know, where, where we found the name for the Pearl Diver glass, the Pearl Diver glass, had its own uh, manufacturer and history. Um, ben, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, the research on this was was a lot of fun and also kind of crazy because you can go down so many different directions. But yeah. So what 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 Jeff Barry calls the pearl diver glass because of course it was used by Don the uh, beachcomber in the pearl diver served in that bar. Uh, obviously, that was a glass that already existed. He, Don was not manufacturing glassware in the '30s. He was he was buying it, and I do I do want to point out that tropical drinks in their heyday, whether it be in, in Cuba and the Caribbean or whether it was in California, uh, you know, in the early part of the last century, it was all glassware. There were no there were no mugs being used at that time. Mugs come come later. Um, so for us, really, the glassware was was more what we wanted to focus on. But yeah, there was there was in the Depression, there was a lot of domestically produced glassware. And there was a company called the Dunbar Glass Corporation in Dunbar, West Virginia, which made this Art Deco juice glass, really, that had the kind of 
characteristic ribbing um, of the pearl diver, and that was the glass. So um, it didn't have a name. It had just kind of catalog numbers. And I've looked at some of those catalogs from the 30s and looked through them, and you know, there's it's just a all the all the glasses had catalog numbers, but there was a glassware historian named Hazel Marie Weatherman who wrote a very influential book in the glass. You know, so hey, we're into cocktails. Some people are just into glasses, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, she wrote a book in which she gave the Dunbar glasses the names of the uh, the three musketeers. So there was uh, so she called the glass the Aramis. And that's how it's known in the in the glass world. Um, so I actually was able to I found all this stuff out because I tracked down uh, uh, I, I tracked down a guy named um, Tom Felt who runs the Dunbar West Virginia Glass Museum, and uh, he turned me on to to Weatherman's book, which I have a copy of. And you know, so um, it's just it's fun you know meeting people like that and interviewing people like that. You know, you wouldn't think you would definitely necessarily be talking to a guy from West Virginia about 1930s glassware, but that's the kind of stuff we did. So we unearthed a little bit of, of history there. Um, there's a lot of little tidbits like that through the book that are, you know, they're not maybe uh, going to yeah, change the world. Yeah, Morgantown was another big glass yeah. manufacturer. Like they made the, the, the famous road. Derby daiquiri glass. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the pearl diver glass used to come in different shapes and even had a pitcher-sized version of it that you yeah, would, there's a, there's you a would picture, make the large pitcher colors. would pour into the smaller pearl divers. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. To, <laughs> cool. And, it, yeah, I think it, long, long response to your question, but it, the aesthetics of the book, I think it was important for us to go back to that sort of original idea, like with Dawn, and, you know, you even see this at, at TKT now, is like, there were just certain cocktails that only had one glass. And, uh, you know, back then when this genre was booming, it's, you know, th they were going through some of these catalogs of depression era glassware and saying, okay, if we just choose this one design for this one drink, it's going to make it a lot more special. And I started doing that also at Sunken Harbor Club where, you know, our Pilsner glass only, only serves this one drink. That's it. And, um, you know, it, with a book, it becomes more special because you can find a, you know, vintage glass. Like the opening cocktail of the book is the Tropical Itch. And I borrowed a vintage Trader Vic uh, Tortuga glass from our friend Adam Colasar. And uh, I just wanted to do that because that design is really cool. And it showed off the foam of the cocktail really well and, you know, just impactful. So... If you are into glassware, I think this book might be the first ever, or certainly first in a long time. Every single cocktail photographed in the book is in a different glass, so every photo has its has unique glass, and it's all it's all very well thought through. Um, we had the great advantage of working with Nico Shinko, who's an amazing photographer, and Garrett and Nico and I, you know, put a lot of time into how these how these photos look. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, most of the collection was from Garrett's own. There's a few from from my collection, a few from that we borrowed, but uh, the photos are, are great, partially because of that unique glassware approach. And we shot and everything totally on great. location too, which not not every cocktail book does. Which yeah, you know, and because really our the book is not about a particular bar, you know, we didn't have to showcase a bar in the sense that we were selling the location, mm -hmm. but right. we 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 shot it in uh, four different bars. And even though it's again, it's not about those spaces, we really wanted to show. The idea of space. We didn't want these to be cocktails that were floating in in the void. 
we wanted them to be, you know, in a, in a hospitable environment. And I think we found little interesting bits and pieces of, of backdrops. So, you know, you don't even necessarily think, oh, it's that place again, because we found little different ways to show it off. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes we shot in like, the cabinet of the server station, you know, and like found this weird little <laughs> corner. You know, there was a lot. Yeah, Nico is very good floor. at finding these strange little corners of all the locations we were in, which was Shea Zoo, Dear Irving on Hudson, Mr. Paradise, uh, Gage and Tolner, and Sunken Harbor Club. So, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that's pretty, that's always kind of fun to be with photographers and have them, you know, like, I think I'm going to take a picture of this cocktail on the floor in this weird corner. Yeah, we love that. They find the space and they make it. They make it work, and it looks gorgeous. Well, it was really fun because you know Garrett was very organized. He showed up. Uh, you know, we shot over. I guess it was four days. Garrett, we shot over four days, yeah. and Garrett would come four with five. several bags where he had you know little little uh, uh, pre batched bottles of cocktail, right? All of his equipment that he needed, and he would be setting up all of that stuff. Uh, Nico would be setting up. The, the lighting and, and essentially I would explore the space as a, as a first pass and go around with our list of what drinks we were going to do that day and, and make notes about, you know, let's try them in these spaces. And then I'd confer with, with the other gentleman. Uh, that was a lot of fun. So yeah, finding those little spaces was really a cool part of it. And we were very lucky to work with those great. Uh, I'm, bars I'm surprised you uh, actually made the actual drink because I've done a lot of styling for, yeah. for for photo shoots and there's a lot of hacks that you can use to uh, you know I mean you know don't don't give away all the secrets but more or less they <laughs> yeah were, they I, weren't all exactly the drink but they were close I did yeah. styling for um, before the pandemic like right before the pandemic for Chloe uh, for Chet's Easy Tiki I did about like mm-hmm. a third of the styling for that book and mm-hmm. I saw like a little bit of their techniques what they do at Punch but um, there are, you know, there's sometimes where you shoot and there is no alcohol in it and there is a visual difference, especially with things like flash blending and frozen drinks, sure. sometimes hard to cheat that just because of like the structure of what those things are. But Hey, yeah. I had, uh, I had some light spirits that I wanted to get rid of in my house and I had some dark spirits <laughs> I wanted to get rid of in my house <laughs> right. and those worked very well. So. Right. Yeah. I, I, I subscribe to the notion that, uh, you know, and this comes from my days working on the Food Network, you know, everything we did on the show I was a part of was real. And the, and the same in the photographs in my book. And, and I'm glad to hear that about this book is because if you take something and you style it, then your consumer tries to recreate it and it never quite looks the same and they feel a failure on their part. Right. We want to show true. what it is and how it looks, you know, so that they can recreate. And I think those textural aspects that Garrett for sure are, are, the, are the hardest to do without doing it correctly. Yeah, 100%. Well, for sure with with things that are blended and shaken. But what about you know, say stirred? Yeah, stirred cocktails <laughs> in that realm. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that's where you can really get away with some cheating because you're not really as long as you take a uh, an atomizer with water in it and spritz it on the outside of the glass <laughs> to make it look frosty. And spray hairspray on the mint to make it stand up and not. All, that, you know, all those kinds of things. But actually, no, that's a good point because I think that, you know, I've always loved tropical drinks that are stirred and served neat uh, or or on one big rock. Uh, and I know that, well, Southern, I mean, that's that's what you do. Um, I mean, minus it, the tropical part. But, yeah, that, that leads to this, you know, how if you guys could explain it a little, how can the tropical approach that you guys are using um, apply itself to the sort of savory and stirred world of cocktails? Yeah, I think it was that 
whole chapter that those cocktails are in, I think was very important to us of having an, having a chapter where we discuss, okay, what, what does the genre not do well and what, you know, what should it do well in that, in that regard? And, and the two big things were like savory, spicy, which, you know, in the, the previous decade was probably the most popular thing all three of us were making behind the bar is this all that people wanted. Um, and then, you know, stirred cocktails, which have had some, you know, have some roots, you know, there's, there are things like the El Presidente, um, the Remember the Main, which, what you know, are, are, were Cuban stirred drinks that still remain today that come from a tropical environment and have that flair to them. But I mean, we largely approached that chapter very similarly to how you, you know, design your menus, Souther, where it was like, okay, let's do some riffs on the Negroni, Manhattan slash Martini and Old Fashioned, and see if we can reference the flavor combinations and profiles that, you know, work in something like a swizzle or a, a sour, but then put them in that context rather than, you know, what they're being used in the 30s and 40s. I mean, the, the improved rum cocktail, which is later in the book, but um, is built like an improved cocktail from the 19th century. It just uses ingredients that are directly taken from an old Don the Beachcomber drink called the Beachcomber's Gold. So it's passion fruit, absinthe, all, you know, almonds, which we're using creme de noyau. But then it's built exactly the same, like an old 19th century whiskey drink. Um, it just happens to then swap those things out and, and use that, that uh, existing structure. But That's Ben, cool. I mean, I think Ben, when we were testing the drinks, I think you had the most fun tasting the stirred ones, right? Well, it's just so new. I mean, uh, I, when we were doing, you know, we've been on a little bit of a book and bar tour uh, around the country in the last couple of months. And we, we had, we always try to have a quite a variety of drinks, different base spirits, different preparations. So there's always been stirred drinks on the menu. And at some of the events we've been doing, specifically uh, one of Garrett's drinks called the Bay of Pigs, which I sort of explain is it's it's a you know it's a Cuba Libre telescoped into an old fashioned format. So it's got the flavors you might associate. You know, it's got it's got a it's got the the, the, the lime etc. But it's not coming from juice. Uh, and I always want people, especially if they're you know cognoscente, I like try that one first because I think it's really rev revelatory um, just to see how that can be done. And everyone, you know, I think it's a real, it's a, it's a connoisseur's drink. People seem to love that one. I, I love that one. Uh, I just, you know, it's just, it really shows the purpose of this book is to, is to kind of push the boundaries a little bit. You know, we think of tropical drinks as being a big tent, but there's lots of ways something can be a tropical drink. As long as you're, you know, celebrating the produce of the tropics, which is all the best stuff anyway. And, you know, the, the history of the people who, who live there, uh, who, who created a lot of these drinks um, initially. Uh, as long as you're achieving those things, it's a, it can be a tropical drink. So, you know, we love, we love tiki drinks, but I think tiki is just like one of the streams. This is, this is a whole, you know, torrent of, of many oceans together that makes up tropical drinks. And I think that stirred part of it is just something that people, you know, they, they think about tropical drinks as being rum and fruit juice on crushed ice, which is a delicious thing to drink, but there's a lot of other things that you can drink that are delicious and it can still have that tropical flair. It's just yeah. reminded me of uh, Garrett. <laughs> I'm sure you have this recipe somewhere, but I was just thinking about one of the uh, Monday Miller Tiki nights at uh, 
Lani Kai. And we were, it was very, very late. And I was like, you know what I'd love to do? Make a hybrid of a Sazerac and a Deckery called uh, Sazeracery. Yeah. <laughs> Sazeracery. <laughs> so, so we worked on it and it was, uh, and we used like a, a lime cordial that he was making instead of a simple, you know, there was a bunch of different things. That, and I think it was, it was rum and brandy, if I remember correctly. If you can find that recipe, I'm sure you have it written down somewhere. I can't find it. I've moved so many times since then. But I, I, kinda, I mean, it kind of falls in with that. Yeah, it does. I, I think I think now there's like way more options to make that idea happen. Because um, in the book, I mean, there, there is that myth. I'm sure in Southern, I'm sure you can speak to this. There's this myth that, you know, stirred drinks have no acidity, but it's like vermouth has acidity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you use something like Tomer's tonic, which has like a lot of citric acid in it. Um, but you know, now there's even more options to throw acidity into a stirred drink because you can do things like lime cordial that's clarified, um, Don's mix, which we use in the Beachcomber Negroni in the book. And at Sunken Harbor Club, we actually make a Sazerac with Don's mix, which we call Don's Dram. So it's not too far from that from that idea, cool. David. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nice. Uh, yeah, sure I mean, I recent, recently, uh, you know, uh, uh, during BCB, Chris Elford, who's a you know alum of Amoria Margo and now owns obviously Navy Strength out in Seattle, he popped over and we did a uh, you know sort of getting the band back together at the original room at Amoria Margo. He and I behind the bar making bitter, stirred, tropical inspired drinks, um, and it was great fun. You know, we we made a mango stora. We we blended mango into angostura. Nice. Um, you know, we, we we did a bunch of fun, interesting things to bring some of those flavors into that stirred canon and it was it was a ton of fun um listen guys i feel like we could talk forever about this book um and i'm going to highly encourage all of our listeners to go out and get a copy i see that you're you have an instagram for the book itself called tropical standard book on instagram you've got a, a facebook that's tropical standard for people to find out what's going on and and, and keep up with, with what you've got we um, also have a website tropicalstandard.com which is okay. a good way if you want to if you want to buy the book it's available at any store but if you go to tropicalstandard.com, uh, you can. There's some links that'll send you to some stores as well. Yeah, right on. Uh, purchase from the little guy. That's that's the yeah, approach exactly. that I always take. Book, bookshop.org is a great place to start. You got any upcoming dates you can mention? I know you guys are doing yes, a tour can. of sorts. Yeah, let's we've been all over the place. So you know, now uh, we're going into tales of the cocktail, as you mentioned. So. Mm-hmm. We're doing a whole bunch of stuff. We'll be doing some signings uh, at Tails. Um, Garrett's also doing a presentation on on Tuesday at Tails. But our big event is going to be Thursday at Tails, the 27th of July, uh, from 4 to 6 at Palm and Pine, which is a beautiful uh, American South and South American uh, restaurant and bar. Mm -hmm. We'll be doing a few different cocktails from the book, uh, and there'll be books for sale. Uh, so you can come and hang out with us and see what it's all about. So that's on uh, Thursday, the 27th, at, from 4 to 6 at Palm and Pine. And if you look in your Tales official you know, schedule, you can you can look for us and we'll be in there. Uh, but uh, that'll be exciting. And I guess, Garrett, now, uh, you know, we have to figure out how to make the uh, Sazerackery. That sounds, <laughs> yeah, very know, right? that sounds very New Orleans to me, right? <laughs> Nothing's more New Orleans than Sazerac plus Daiquiri, right? right. There's a part of me yeah. that thinks uh, it'd be fun to make it like an ounce of Peychaud's and like a half ounce of rye whiskey and like do it, <laughs> totally. do it upside down, you know? <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. Old and new, um, man. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's called, that's called uh, pulling a Giuseppe. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Oh man! Well, yeah. hey guys, this is, the book looks awesome. Um, it's full of wonderful information. I know we barely scratched the surface of it, but you know, go out and buy the book, people. And yeah. you know, there's like a whole page on uh, you know, kind of the, 
the story of the lime, which I think is really important. I love I love yeah. little chapter breaks like that that are super informative and you know that's kind of it's kind of information that goes a long way with uh, with not just you know us cocktail people uh, bartenders, but for people who are uh, just fans of the cocktail, just to know more about it because that's there's so much story uh, storied history you know with with these types of drinks and the spirits that go into them. But you're creating the new history, which is really cool, and uh, so kudos to that uh, to that end because you know we we need we need to constantly be checking what we're doing, checking our work, and evolving. And this is a really great way of doing it. And as you said, uh, a category of cocktail styles that hasn't really been touched too much or or updated uh, in a very long time. So great job on this, guys! Again, and uh, and thanks for being on the Speakeasy. Yeah, thanks yeah. for. Thanks for having us. And also, if anyone is interested in tasting any drinks, there are a good number, and you're not at Tales of the Cocktail, there's a good number of drinks from the book at Sunken Harbor Club. So, uh, yeah, you can taste a Tijuana Taxi, a Rum Barrel, all sorts of lovely drinks from Tropical Standard there. So, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It's a beautiful <laughs> space, too. Yeah, that bar is is gorgeous. Um, you're, you're fortunate to be helming that one that's it's, it's a gorgeous space i love every time i go in there i feel totally uh immersed I <laughs> that's feel the idea I guess. <laughs> yeah. uh, well that's it for this uh episode of the speakeasy guys thanks again for spending your time with us um be sure to tune into heritage radio network for plenty more shows just like this one click on the beating heart to donate and keep shows like us on the air uh so that's it everybody thanks so much and cheers cheers thanks again yeah thank you Hope to have a drink with you soon yeah, of course. Yeah. So you don't shun the devil with your The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food and drink radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org/subscribe. <laughs>